Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is a classic science fiction novel written by the French author Jules Verne. It was first published in 1870 and is one of Verne's most famous works. The novel is known for its imaginative portrayal of underwater exploration and adventure. The story is narrated by Professor Pierre Aronnax, a French marine biologist who, along with his faithful servant Consal and a Canadian harpooner named Ned Land, embarks on a journey to investigate mysterious sea creatures that have been causing havoc in the world's oceans. They soon discover that these creatures are actually part of a technologically advanced submarine, the Nautilus, commanded by the enigmatic Captain Nemo. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is considered a pioneering work of science fiction and is known for its accurate and detailed descriptions of underwater life and technology. It has been adapted into numerous films, television series, and other media and continues to be a beloved classic of literature. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by Gaia's Symphony on Apple Music. Chapters 5 for Thousand Leagues Under the Pacific. The next morning, the 18th of November, I had quite recovered from my fatigues of the day before, and I went up onto the platform just as the second lieutenant was uttering his daily phrase. I was admiring the magnificent aspect of the ocean when Captain Nemo appeared. He did not seem to be aware of my presence and began a series of astronomical observations. Then, when he had finished, he went and led on the cage of the watchlight and gazed abstractedly on the ocean. In the meantime, a number of the sailors of the Nautilus, all strong and healthy men, had come up onto the platform. They came to drop the nets that had been laid all night. These sailors were evidently of different nations, although the European type was visible in all of them. I recognized some unmistakable Irishmen, Frenchmen, some slaves, and a Greek or a Candiote. They were civil and only used that odd language among themselves, the origin of which I could not guess, neither could I question them. The nets were hauled in. They were a large kind of chalets, like those on the Normandy coasts, great pockets that the waves and a chain fixed in the smaller meshes kept open. These pockets, drawn by iron poles, swept through the water and gathered in everything in their way. That day they brought up curious specimens from those productive coasts. I reckon that the hall had brought in more than 900 weight of fish. It was a fine haul, but not to be wondered at. Indeed, the nets are let down for several hours, 
and enclose in their meshes an infinite variety. We had no lack of excellent food and the rapidity of the Nautilus and the attraction of the electric light could always renew our supply. These several productions of the sea were immediately lowered through the panel to the steward's room, some to be eaten fresh and others pickled. The fishing ended, the provision of air renewed, I thought that the Nautilus was about to continue its submarine excursion and was preparing to return to my room when, without further preamble, the captain turned to me, saying, Professor, is not this ocean gifted with real life? It has its tempers and its gentle moods. Yesterday it slept as we did, and now it has woke after a quiet night. Look, he continued, it wakes under the caresses of the sun. It is going to renew its diurnal existence. It is an interesting study to watch the play of its organization. It has a pulse, arteries, spasms, and I agree with the learned Mori, who discovered in it a circulation as real as the circulation of blood in animals. Yes, the ocean has indeed circulation, and to promote it, the creator has caused things to multiply in a caloric, salt, and animalculae. When Captain Nemo spoke thus, he seemed altogether changed and aroused an extraordinary emotion in me. Also, he added, true existence is there, and I can imagine the foundations of nautical towns, clusters of submarine houses, which, like the Nautilus, would ascend every morning to breathe at the surface of the water, free towns, independent cities. Yet who knows whether some despot. Captain Nemo finished his sentence with a violent gesture. Then, addressing me as if to chase away some sorrowful thought. M. Moronax, he asked, do you know the depth of the ocean? I only know, Captain, what the principal soundings have taught us. Could you tell me them, so that I can suit them to my purpose? These are some, I replied, that I remember. If I am not mistaken, a depth of 8,000 yards has been found in the North Atlantic and 2,500 yards in the Mediterranean. The most remarkable soundings have been made in the South Atlantic near the 35th parallel and they gave 12,000 yards, 14,000 yards, and 15,000 yards. To sum up all, it is reckoned that if the bottom of the sea were leveled, its mean depth would be about one and three-quarter leagues. Well, Professor, replied the captain, we shall show you better than that, I hope. As to the mean depth of this part of the Pacific, I tell you it is only 4,000 yards. Having said this, Captain Nemo went towards the panel and disappeared down the ladder. I followed him and went into the large drawing room. The screw was immediately put in motion and the log gave 20 miles an hour. During the days and weeks that passed, Captain Nemo was very sparing of his visits. I seldom saw him. The lieutenant pricked the ship's course regularly on the chart so I could always tell exactly the route of the Nautilus. Nearly every day, for some time, the panels of the drawing room were opened 
and we were never tired of penetrating the mysteries of the submarine world. The general direction of the Nautilus was southeast, and it kept between 100 and 150 yards of depth. One day, however, I do not know why, being drawn diagonally by means of the inclined planes, it touched the bed of the sea. The thermometer indicated a temperature of 4.25, sent a temperature that at this depth seemed common to all latitudes. At 3 o'clock in the morning of the 26th of November, the Nautilus crossed the Tropic of Cancer at 172 degrees long. On 27th instant, it sighted the Sandwich Islands, where Cook died, February 14, 1779. We had then gone 4,860 leagues from our starting point. In the morning, when I went on the platform, I saw two miles to windward, Hawaii, the largest of the seven islands that form the group. I saw clearly the cultivated ranges and the several mountain chains that run parallel with the side and the volcanoes that overtop Mount Array, which rise 5,000 yards above the level of the sea. Besides other things the nets brought up were several flabellarii and graceful polypi that are peculiar to that part of the ocean. The direction of the Nautilus was still to the southeast. It crossed the equator December 1st in 142 degrees long and on the 4th of the same month, after crossing rapidly and without anything in particular occurring, we sighted the Marquesas group. I saw Three miles off, Martin's Peak in Nukahiva, the largest of the group that belongs to France. I only saw the woody mountains against the horizon because Captain Nemo did not wish to bring the ship to the wind. There the nets brought up beautiful specimens of fish, some with azure fins and tails like gold, the flesh of which is unrivaled, some nearly destitute of scales, but of exquisite flavor, others, with bony jaws and yellow tinged gills, as good as bonitos, all fish that would be of use to us. After leaving these charming islands protected by the French flag, from the 4th to the 11th of December, the Nautilus sailed over about 2,000 miles. During the daytime of the 11th of December, I was busy reading in the large drawing room. Ned Land and Consal watched the luminous water through the half-open panels. The Nautilus was immovable. While its reservoirs were filled, it kept at a depth of 1,000 yards, a region rarely visited in the ocean and in which large fish were seldom seen. I was then reading a charming book by Jean Mace, The Slaves of the Stomach, and I was learning some valuable lessons from it when Consal interrupted me. Will Master come here a moment, he said in a curious voice. What is the matter, Consile? I want Master to look. I rose, went, and leaned on my elbows before the panes and watched. In a full electric light, an enormous black mass, quite immovable, was suspended in the midst of the waters. I watched it attentively, seeking to find out the nature of this gigantic cetacean. But a sudden thought crossed my mind. A vessel, I said, half aloud. Yes, 
replied the Canadian, a disabled ship that has sunk perpendicularly. Ned Lamb was right. We were close to a vessel of which the tattered shrouds still hung from their chains. The keel seemed to be in good order, and it had been wrecked at most some few hours. Three stumps of masts, broken off about two feet above the bridge, showed that the vessel had had to sacrifice its masts. But, lying on its side, it had filled, and it was healing over to port. This skeleton of what it had once been was a sad spectacle as it lay lost under the waves, but sadder still was the side of the bridge where some corpses, bound with ropes, were still lying. I counted five four men, one of whom was standing at the helm, and a woman standing by the poop, holding an infant in her arms. She was quite young. I could distinguish her features, which the water had not decomposed, by the brilliant light from the Nautilus. In one despairing effort, she had raised her infant above her head, poor little thing, whose arms encircled its mother's neck. The attitude of the four sailors was frightful, distorted as they were by their convulsive movements, whilst making a last effort to free themselves from the cords that bound them to the vessel. The steersman alone, calm, with a grave, clear face, his gray hair glued to his forehead, and his hand clutching the wheel of the helm, seemed even then to be guiding the three broken masts through the depths of the ocean. What a scene! We were dumb, our hearts beat fast before this shipwreck, taken as it were from life and photographed in its last moments. And I saw already, coming towards it with hungry eyes, enormous sharks, attracted by the human flesh. However, the Nautilus, turning, went round the submerged vessel, and in one instant I read on the stern the Florida, Sunderland. Chapter Spyavanicaro This terrible spectacle was the forerunner of the series of maritime catastrophes that the Nautilus was destined to meet within its route. As long as it went through more frequented waters, we often saw the hulls of shipwrecked vessels that were rotting in the depths, and deeper down cannons, bullets, anchors, chains, and a thousand other iron materials eaten up by rust. However, on the 11th of December we sighted the Pomoto Islands, the old dangerous group of Bougainville, that extend over a space of 500 leagues at ESE to WNW, from the island Dusi to that of Lazareff. This group covers an area of 370 square leagues, and it is formed of 60 groups of islands, among which the Gamber group is remarkable, over which France exercises sway. These are coral islands, slowly raised, but continuous, created by the daily work of polypi. Then this new island will be joined later onto the neighboring groups, and a fifth continent will stretch from New Zealand and New Caledonia, and from thence to the Marquesas. One day, while I was suggesting this theory to Captain Nemo, he replied coldly, The Earth does not want new continents, but new men. Chance had conducted the Nautilus towards the island of Clermont Tonnerre, one of the most curious of the group that was discovered in 1822 by Captain Bell of the Minerva. 
I could study now the madrepral system to which are due the islands in this ocean. Madre pores, which must not be mistaken for corals, have a tissue lined with a calcareous crust, and the modifications of its structure have induced him, Milne Edwards, my worthy master, to class them into five sections. The animalcule that the marine polypus secretes live by millions at the bottom of their cells. Their calcareous deposits become rocks, reefs, and large and small islands. Here they form a ring surrounding a little inland lake that communicates with the sea by means of gaps. There they make barriers of reefs like those on the coasts of New Caledonia and the various Palmetan Islands. In other places, like those at Reunion and Maurice, they raise fringed reefs, high, straight walls, near which the depth of the ocean is considerable. Some cable lengths off the shores of the island of Claremont, I admired the gigantic work accomplished by these microscopical workers. These walls are especially the work of those madre pores known as malepras, porites, madre pores, and estrias. These polypi are found particularly in the rough beds of the sea near the surface, and consequently it is from the upper part that they begin their operations in which they bury themselves by degrees with the debris of the secretions that support them. Such is, at least, Darwin's theory, who thus explains the formation of the atolls, a superior theory, to my mind, to that given of the foundation of the madreporical works, summits of mountains or volcanoes that are submerged some feet below the level of the sea. I could observe closely these curious walls, for perpendicularly they were more than 300 yards deep, and our electric sheets light up this calcareous matter brilliantly. Replying to a question Consal asked me as to the time these colossal barriers took to be raised, I astonished him much by telling him that learned men reckoned it about the eighth of an inch in a hundred years. Towards evening Clermont Tonnerre was lost in the distance, and the route of the Nautilus was sensibly changed. After having crossed the Tropic of Capricorn in 135 degrees longitude, it sailed WNW, making again for the tropical zone. Although the summer sun was very strong, we did not suffer from heat, for at 15 or 20 fathoms below the surface, the temperature did not rise above from 10 to 12 degrees. On 15th of December, we left to the east the bewitching group of the societies and the graceful Tahiti, Queen of the Pacific. I saw in the morning, some miles to the windward, the elevated summits of the island. These waters furnished our table with excellent fish, mackerel, bonitos, and some varieties of a sea serpent. On the 25th of December, the Nautilus sailed into the midst of the New Hebrides, discovered by Quiros in 1606, and that Bougainville explored in 1768, and to which Cook gave its present name in 1773. This group is composed principally of nine large islands that form a band of 120 leagues and an S to SSW between 15 degrees and 2 degrees south lat and 164 degrees and 168 degrees long. 
We passed tolerably near to the island of Oru that at noon looked like a mass of green woods surmounted by a peak of great height. That day being Christmas Day, Ned Land seemed to regret sorely the non-celebration of Christmas, the family fate of which Protestants are so fond. I had not seen Captain Nemo for a week when, on the morning of the 27th, he came into the large drawing room, always seeming as if he had seen me five minutes before. I was busily tracing the route of the Nautilus on the planisphere. The captain came up to me, put his finger on one spot on the chart, and said this single word. Danikoro. The effect was magical. It was the name of the islands on which La Perouse had been lost. I rose suddenly. The Nautilus has brought us to Vanikoro? I asked. Yes, Professor, said the captain. And I can visit the celebrated islands where the bussel and the astrolabe struck? If you like, Professor. When shall we be there? We are there now. Followed by Captain Nemo, I went up onto the platform and greedily scanned the horizon. To the any two volcanic islands emerged of unequal size, surrounded by a coral reef that measured 40 miles in circumference. We were close to Vanicoro, really the one to which Dumont d'Irville gave the name of Adelarecherche, and exactly facing the little harbor of Vanu, situated in 16 degrees 4 minutes south, lat and 164 degrees 32 minutes east, long. The earth seemed covered with verdure from the shore to the summits in the interior that were crowned by Mount Capoco, 476 feet high. The Nautilus, having passed the outer belt of rocks by a narrow strait, found itself among breakers where the sea was from 30 to 40 fathoms deep. Under the verdant shade of some mangroves, I perceived some savages who appeared greatly surprised at our approach. In the long black body, moving between wind and water, did they not see some formidable cetacean that they regarded with suspicion? Just then, Captain Nemo asked me what I knew about the wreck of La Perouse. Only what everyone knows, Captain, I replied. And could you tell me what everyone knows about it? He inquired, ironically. Easily. I related to him all that the last works of Dumont d'Irville had made known works from which the following is a brief account. La Perouse and his second, Captain Delaney, were sent by Louis XVI in 1785 on a voyage of circumnavigation. They embarked in the Corvette's Bussel and the Astrolabe, neither of which were again heard of. In 1791, the French government, justly uneasy as to the fate of these two sloops, manned two large merchantmen, the Recherche and the Esperance, which left Brest the 28th of September under the command of Bruni d'Entrecastos. Two months after, they learned from Bowen, commander of the Albemarle, that the debris of shipwrecked vessels had been seen on the coasts of New Georgia. But D'Entrecastos, 
ignoring this communication rather uncertain, besides directed his course towards the Admiralty Islands, mentioned in a report of Captain Hunter's as being the place where La Perouse was wrecked. They sought in vain. The Esperance and the Recherche passed before Vanacoro without stopping there, and, in fact, this voyage was most disastrous, as it cost Intracastos his life and those of two of his lieutenants, besides several of his crew. Captain Dillon, a shrewd old Pacific sailor, was the first to find unmistakable traces of the wrecks. On the 15th of May, 1824, his vessel, the St. Patrick, passed close to Tacopia, one of the New Hebrides. There Alaska came alongside in a canoe, sold in the handle of a sword in silver that bore the print of characters engraved on the hilt. The Lasker pretended that six years before, during his stay at Vanacoro, he had seen two Europeans that belonged to some vessels that had run aground on the reef some years ago. Dylan guessed that he met La Perouse, whose disappearance had troubled the whole world. He tried to get onto Vanacoro, where, according to the Lasker, he would find numerous debris of the wreck, but winds and tides prevented him. Dylan returned to Calcutta. There he interested the Asiatic Society and the Indian Company in his discovery. A vessel, to which was given the name of the Recherche, was put at his disposal, and he set out January 23, 1827, accompanied by a French agent. The Recherche, after touching at several points in the Pacific, cast anchor before Vanacoro, July 7, 1827, in that same harbor of Vanu where the Nautilus was at this time. There it collected numerous relics of the wreck iron utensils, anchors, pulley straps, swivel guns, and 18 pounds, shot, fragments of astronomical instruments, a piece of crown work, and a bronze clock, Bearing this inscription, Bazin and Fate, the mark of the foundry of the arsenal at Brest about 1785. There could be no further doubt. Dylan, having made all inquiries, stayed in the unlucky place till October. Then he quitted Vanacoro and directed his course towards New Zealand, put into Calcutta, April 7, 1828, and returned to France where he was warmly welcomed by Charles X. But at the same time, without knowing Dylan's movements, Dumont d'Urville had already set out to find the scene of the wreck. And they had learned from a whaler that some medals and a cross of St. Louis had been found in the hands of some savages of Louisiade and New Caledonia. Dumont d'Urville, commander of the Astrolabe, had then sailed and two months after Dylan had left Vanacoro, he put into Hobart town. There he learned the results of Dylan's inquiries and found that a certain James Hobbs, second lieutenant of the Union of Calcutta, after landing on an island situated 8 degrees 18 minutes south, lat, and 156 degrees 30 minutes east, long, had seen some iron bars and red stuffs used by the natives of these parts. Dumont d'Urville, much perplexed, and not knowing how to credit the reports of low-class journals, decided to follow Dylan's track. On the 10th of February, 1828, 
the astrolabe appeared off Tecopia and took his guide and interpreter a deserter found on the island, made his way to Vanacoro, sighted it on the 12th INST, lay among the reefs until the 14th, and not until the 20th did he cast anchor within the barrier in the harbor of Vanu. On the 23rd, several officers went round the island and brought back some unimportant trifles. The natives, adopting a system of denials and evasions, refused to take them to the unlucky place. This ambiguous conduct led them to believe that the natives had ill-treated the castaways, and indeed they seemed to fear that Dumont d'Urville had come to avenge La Perouse and his unfortunate crew. However, on the 26th, appeased by some presence, and understanding that they had no reprisals to fear, they led him, Jaquiria, to the scene of the wreck. There, in three or four fathoms of water, between the reefs of Paku and Vanu, lay anchors, cannons, pigs of lead and iron, embedded in the limey concretions. The large boat and the whaler belonging to the astrolabe were sent to this place, and, not without some difficulty, their crews hauled up an anchor weighing 1,800 pounds, a brass gun, some pigs of iron, and two copper swivel guns. Dumont d'Urville, questioning the natives, learned too that La Perouse, after losing both his vessels on the reefs of this island, had constructed a smaller boat, only to be lost a second time. Where? No one knew. But the French government, fearing that Dumont d'Urville was not acquainted with Dillon's movements, had sent the sloop Bayonnaise, commanded by Lagorin de Tromelin, to Vanacoro, which had been stationed on the west coast of America. The Bayonnaise cast her anchor before Vanacoro some months after the departure of the astrolabe, but found no new document, but stated that the savages had respected the monument to La Perouse. That is the substance of what I told Captain Nemo. So, he said, no one knows now where the third vessel perished that was constructed by the castaways on the island of Vanacoro? No one knows. Captain Nemo said nothing, but signed to me to follow him into the large saloon. The Nautilus sank several yards below the waves, and the panels were opened. I hastened to the aperture, and under the crustaceans of coral, covered with fungi, siphonals, alcyons, madre pores, through myriads of charming fishtrails, glyphysidry, pomphorides, diacopes, and holocenters, I recognized certain debris that the drags had not been able to tear up iron stirrups, anchors, cannons, bullets, capstan fittings, the stem of a ship, all objects clearly proving the wreck of some vessel and now carpeted with living flowers. While I was looking on this desolate scene, Captain Nemo said in a sad voice, Commander La Perouse set out December 7, 1785 with his vessels La Boussole and the Astrolabe. He first cast anchor at Botany Bay, visited the Friendly Isles, New Caledonia, then directed his course towards Santa Cruz and put into Namuka, one of the Apai group. Then his vessel struck on the unknown reefs of Vanacoro. The Boussole, which went first, ran aground on the southerly coast. The Astrolabe went to its help and ran aground too. 
the first vessel was destroyed almost immediately. The second, stranded under the wind, resisted some days. The natives made the castaways welcome. They installed themselves in the island and constructed a smaller boat with the debris of the two large ones. Some sailors stayed willingly at Vanacoro, the others, weak and ill, set out with La Perouse. They directed their course towards the Solomon Islands and there perished, with everything, on the westerly coast of the chief island of the group between Cape's deception and satisfaction. How do you know that? By this, that I found on the spot where was the last wreck. Captain Nemo showed me a tin plate box, stamped with the French arms and corroded by the salt water. He opened it and I saw a bundle of papers, yellow but still readable. They were the instructions of the naval minister to Commander La Perouse, annotated in the margin in Louis XVI's handwriting. Oh, it is a fine death for a sailor, said Captain Nemo, at last. A coral tomb makes a quiet grave, and I trust that I and my comrades will find no other.